0: Playing a little Steve Green this morning hope you can hear it as we begin the song so fitting for our study today incredible words like a prisoner released from his shackles like a spirit set free from the tomb. Here's the key, broken and spilled out. Good morning, Sylvia. Just been listening to this broken and spilled out by Steve Green as I was preparing, had it in the background as I was preparing today's lesson. Uh, Chris Burrell, thanks for joining today. What a great blessing to have you here, brother. God bless you and your family. Uh, Just just, going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, part 3, the last section today. The story of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet and uh, just made my heart think of this song. So, listening to it as we begin here. Steve Green is amazing. And sweet. I just want to sing it, but I'm sure you'd rather hear it, Steve Green. Wow, beautiful stuff there. Well, it goes on and on. This morning, uh, I want to uh, just, just let you, uh, invite you into that thought, that, uh, that whole storyline of uh, a plain village woman who broke a vial, an alabaster vial, and poured it all over Jesus' feet and anointed him out of love and repentance. We're going to talk about that. And uh, just in, in as Steve Green said in that song, in sweet abandon. I like that phrase, in sweet abandon. Probably come back to that a little later. Um, hey, do you have a cup of coffee this morning? I have. A, to, this morning was a quick shop run for coffee right next to the office here. It's uh, So it's the quick shop, Diamond Brew. They have good decaf, put a little bit of hazelnut in the top, needed a little extra boost this morning. So if I look a little tired this morning, it's because I am. (laughs) We uh, brought my sweet wife Rhonda home, as most of you or many of you know, from the hospital yesterday. She had a total knee replacement on Monday, and uh, so she's home today. And, uh, you know, the doctor said everything went great, but boy, it's, I can't even imagine the pain that she is in. It is horrible. Everyone said it would be, and it is. And, uh, you know, we have uh, our first physical therapy outside appointment tomorrow morning. But it's just been, uh, come a sleepless night, trying to get her comfortable. And uh, so I'm I'm breaking the cardiology rules and drinking a little caffeine this morning, which I do every now and then. Don't tell my cardiologist Judith, thanks for watching. Um, Beverly, I think I saw your name there. Thanks for watching. So I want to ask you to continue to pray for Rhonda. She she is doing well, but, you know, has several weeks of, of difficulty ahead and pray for that therapy, uh, rehab therapy. That is so important, uh, as we know. Um, so, hey, if you got your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, or your uh, favorite drink, uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to look at a passage this morning from verse 36 through verse 50, and that'll end the chapter of Luke 7. So this is part three of chapter 7. Great story. Just just one of the most vivid passages of Scripture. Luke tells stories uh, almost like he's a painter. He, he He's just Painting these word pictures and details for us, so we don't want to we don't want to rush through this. We want to hear the words of what Luke is saying, um, and and take take time to absorb it. It's it's a story. The thought of a woman anointing Jesus' feet is a story that is told in all four gospels. Told differently though, Matthew, Mark, and John speak about it being in Bethany at uh, a Simon the leper's house. Uh, John actually says, just doesn't say it's at Simon the leper's if I remember right, but because Martha is serving, we assume it's Lazarus' house, but maybe not. Simon the leper's there. Um, But Luke tells it differently. Luke says this is at a Pharisee's house named Simon. Now Simon is a very common name of the Hebrew people, so there's no need to try and force these all into one story. This is, uh, this is actually something that could have been played out many times, um, and, and we'll talk about how that is as we go on. So I think this is a separate story. Uh, hard to know which one exactly, uh, I don't know which one Steve Green was thinking of when he wrote his song. The, the concept is there, though, of this alabaster jar or vial that gets broken and spilled out. Uh, in love of Jesus. So, hey, if you have your uh, prayer cards, pull it out. And let's always begin the study of God's word with prayer and uh, asking the Lord to just open our eyes and and uh, especially to open my eyes. I, mean, I feel like I need some toothpicks here to stretch them open. But uh, if you don't have one, it is under photos there on the Brad Riley Ministries page that you're on. So go ahead and look at that. Um, I'm just remembering to do a few things here. Let me click. uh, Let me find my audio recording. I didn't bring my little audio device this morning. I left with a different work bag. And so I am going to do this QuickTime player and see if I can get that to work real quickly as we're going here. Um, Cancel that just so in so moved by the music and getting ready that i forgot new audio record that i actually forgot to set up the audio so i try to always keep them separate here looks like we're going and yes okay good deal well let's pray take out your scripture prayer let's pray illumine our hearts O master lover of all humanity with the pure light of your divine knowledge Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy good and life-creating spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for praying that. And uh, let's just look at the scripture this morning. Let's let's begin. I'm going to point out a few things along the way. This is kind of a long it's kind of a long passage longer than we usually deal with. But uh, I'll try and read it in its full breath and and just come back to it then but look with me will you at the word of the lord from luke chapter 7 verse 36 through 50 one of the pharisees asked to eat with him and he went into the pharisee's house and took his place at table and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was at table in the pharisee's house Brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, What is it, teacher, or rabbi in most versions? A certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, When they could not pay, he forgave them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's so much. Let's begin with the setting and the the time and place we realize we've been we've been following Jesus in the region of Galilee in this portion of Luke's gospel so this is most likely in Galilee Luke does not tell us the place or the time but it is most likely in Galilee in one of the villages of Galilee and he he does tell us that it's a Pharisee's house which is different from the other versions Matthew Mark and John uh, they are in a leper's house, so uh, they both have the same name, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, when let, Let's think about the custom here. This is a Pharisee, so it's a pretty wealthy individual. The Pharisees were some of the more wealthier people in society. So he would have a nice home, and the, the architectural style of that era and place, uh, nice homes were built kind of in a square around an open courtyard. That courtyard was open so that the passers-by on the street could see in, and they could see the lavish parties and things that were being uh, done at the Pharisees' home. The Pharisees were people of interest, and the poor people, of course, would love to see what was going on in their lives. It was probably even a form of entertainment for some poor people. But but the Pharisees, of course, liked to show also, and they so they loved showing to the to the people, uh, what was going on in their home. And uh, Judith just mentioned, I'm praying for you both. Thank you, Judith. I appreciate that. I, I We need, need your prayers there. So uh, thank you. And um, so jump over to Facebook here and see if I caught the larger image of it here. I don't think I did, but uh, didn't get started in time. But I can see your notes on the screen here. So here is this table, and it tells us that the Pharisee asked Jesus to eat with him. So it's an invitation. We do not have any reason to believe that he's necessarily a follower of Jesus, especially the way he treats him by not greeting him in the customary manner, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's possible then that he's interested in learning more about Jesus, Uh, maybe just kind of checking him out. He's heard these amazing stories, probably seen some miracles around the villages. It's also possible that he's just patronizing Jesus, that he's actually wanting to trip him up or find him uh, say something. So we we don't know his motives. But as you see at the end of today's lesson, we do know his heart uh, because it's revealed. Now, it is customary in that day that three things always happened when a guest came to your home, especially the home of a wealthier person. But these were tradition. When a guest would come to anyone's home, the first is that the host would always greet the guest with a kiss to the cheek. Always, that is just usually a hand on the shoulder and a kiss to the cheek. That's customary. Second is to uh, is to have a basin of water they always had basins of water nearby the the entranceway because the streets were dirt and dusty and nobody had good shoes you know straps around your feet and so the idea was not only to to offer cleansing to the guest who's come in but to give them comfort a little cool water because it's probably the very warm time of the year it gets very very hot there in certain times of the year so we're we're seeing that remember the story in john about uh, the the wedding in Cana and those big water pots that were sitting by there that Jesus they had been they had been uh, depleted because all the guests' feet were washed. Jesus filled them with water to the top and this way he turned the water into wine. So it was very common to have water there at the door and that was never skipped. I mean you did not not wash your guests' feet. And then the third thing was that Usually a vial uh, or a little drop of, a couple of drops of, of either incense oil or perhaps rose water, rose, fragrant rose water was used a lot, was anointed on the head of the guest. Give them the sweet smell after coming off of the road. So, and plus these are just, these are just things of respect. It shows you're honoring a guest who comes to your home. This is all missed by this Simon the Pharisee. He doesn't do any of them. And and the scripture points that out. But yet, Luke, notice with verse 37, Luke's telling the story. uh, One of his favorite words in in his writings is, and behold, and behold, he wants us, the readers, to take notice. Something's transitioning here. Something's changing uh, drastically. And... uh, A woman comes in. Now, it was not uncommon for people to come in. This is an open courtyard. He's throwing a big house party, a meal banquet party, and he wants people to come in and see his place. He wants people to come in. But typically, certain kinds of people didn't just wander in. Okay? So this is unusual. And it says right here, Luke wants us to know, it was a woman who was a sinner most likely, a prostitute doesn't say that, but most likely. Uh, this is there's there's just little clues along the way. This was considered of the sin, I mean everyone's a sinner, right? But of all the sins that one could fall into, the idea of a prostitute, a woman who was not married, who was not, uh, taking care of family or anything like that who was actually a prostitute this is the most scandalous sin in that society uh, that you could imagine so here she comes in and she sa- it says that we need to notice a couple of things here it says in verse 37 that she learned and when she learned that he was at table in the pharisee's house at table means they're eating and when she learned that they were at table in the pharisee's house Now, that word learned there, if we look that up in the Greek, that's a really important word. It's uh, epigenosko, epigenosko, E-P-I-G-I-N-O-S-K-O. We know nosko or nosis is the Greek word for knowledge, to, to know something, to learn something. But epi, which means great or really big. So the idea when Luke says epigenosko, he's saying she sought this information out. She just didn't learn it. Somebody just didn't say, hey, you know, Jesus is over there at Simon's house. No, she's looking for him. This is Luke telling us she's looking for Jesus. She wants to know where Jesus is, and she finds him. And when she learns this, really learns it, she goes. Very important detail. Now, as she comes in, it says she's standing behind him at his feet. So picture the scene. The tables were very low to the ground, not like our tables. They were low to the ground. There were pillows on the floor. The guests would lean on their left elbow, okay? And they would sit at the table, you know, kind of leaning on this so that they could eat with their right. And because they're so low, their feet have to go somewhere. So their feet are behind them, kind of dangling out behind them. And, And this is happening all around the table. So, you know. In our modern context, somebody comes to a table, dinner party, is going to anoint somebody's feet. Pretty hard to get to their feet. They're under the table, and that's not the case here. So when she walks up to Jesus, she walks right up to his feet. And and as it says here, standing behind him at his feet, she begins weeping. She wet his feet with her tears. Not just a couple of drops. She's weeping. This is a this is a, a, a full blown cry. Very important. We'll come back to that in a minute. And she's wetting his feet with her tears, and then she 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 wipes them with her hair. Of course, women had long hair, but women of of uh, women of uh, who were married or who were of uh, good repute let's use it that way they would always wear their hair bound up. Okay, once a woman was married. She never let her hair down in public, but she obviously lets her hair down and uses her hair to begin wiping his feet, wiping the tears off of his feet. And, and then it says that uh, she kissed his feet. It wasn't enough to just wash his feet. Okay, She probably noticed that they were dirty because Simon didn't offer the customary washing. And, and she sees her tears flowing down. She's wiping the dust and the dirt off with the, with the tears. And then she kisses his feet. Wow. That is a sign of ultimate, if none of this rest of us was, and it was, as a sign of ultimate humility and reverence, she kisses his feet. And then, if all that wasn't enough, it says she takes some ointment and anoints them. Because she brought in, look in verse 37, it said she brought with her a flask of ointment. Now, we don't know if she's carrying a flask or if she's maybe wearing one around her neck. Women sometimes very commonly wore a vial of alabaster, made of alabaster, and with that perfume. And that would be... Uh, used for sweet smelling and things. That was not an uncommon thing to wear around the neck for a woman, especially, of course, uh, a, a woman in this case who is a sinner or a prostitute who's probably using uh, that fragrance a lot. But the idea is this is an ointment. Now, we, we notice in uh, smelling, beautiful smelling incense and ointments, uh, the other scriptures, the other gospels talk about a nard and this... Uh, this flask full, being very costly. So it probably was very costly. And to her, it was probably the most costly thing that she had. This precious jar. I mean, people didn't earn money to just keep perfume around. I mean, it was for, usually, in most families, perfume was used for, like I said, a drop at the door on your guest's head. But it was often used, of course, for anointing the bodies that were about to be buried. And we know that in the other three Gospels that, that are a similar type story here, Jesus actually says that. When the people are repulsed or his followers are repulsed uh, by this, they, you know, the money could have been used, they said, to pay the buy something for the poor, and, and Jesus says, No, she's preparing me for my burial. He doesn't say that in this story. Again, I think this is a different story. It clearly is set up by Luke as a different story. So uh, with this alabaster jar. She opens it, breaks it, whatever she has to do. It doesn't say that she breaks it, but she just takes it and she anoints his feet with oil. Sweet smelling ointment. Now, this causes a reaction in our guest. This is how we know that our guest is not really a sincere follower of Jesus. He says to himself, so he's mumbling under his breath, but it's obviously audible. And he, he says to himself, know if this guy was a real rabbi teacher like he says he is a great prophet even he'd know who this was because women didn't touch men in public and if they weren't married at all that was really the custom. that was important never would a woman just go up and touch a man and 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 caress him or anything like that Um, so again the guests and the host are shocked by this and they're looking at this and, and he's just saying to himself, if this guy were really the prophet everybody says he is, and he thinks he is, he would know what kind of woman this is. Never would a woman touch a man and especially never a sinner because that would make him unclean. So there's this real mindset of self-righteousness that we see in this Simon the Pharisee. And... Uh, Jesus responds. He's not even asking Jesus a question. He just says he's, Luke says he's kind of talking to himself here. But Jesus hears him. And so Jesus says, you know, I've got something to say to you. This is where we learn his name is Simon in the beginning. It just says he's a Pharisee. Simon, I've got something to say to you. Simon at least gives him the respect of calling him rabbi. He does say. So he's, it's not like totally, uh, you know, completely uh, rude and and, and evil in his approach to Jesus here. He did invite him to dinner, didn't customarily welcome him. So that was a a affront to uh, his being a good host. But he does say, what is it, rabbi? Or what is it, teacher? So he's giving him a little bit of respect there. And Jesus begins to tell a story, a little parable that Jesus spins out for him. And it's very, very important. This is going to set up this whole story. He says to him, you know, there's a certain uh, creditor, a man who has two people who owe him money. They're they're in his debt. And one 50 denarii, one 500 denarii. And he says, when he realizes that neither of them can pay, he forgives them both. And so asking this Pharisee this most important question, which one do you suppose uh, loves him the most for what he did? Uh, now, which of them will love him more is how it's phrased here. Which of them will love him more? Well, The answer is pretty obvious. I mean, if you have been forgiven more, you have more gratefulness, uh, more, something more to be thankful of. A big debt than a little debt. Wow. There's this c- connection between the size of what is owed and the amount of forgiveness received. It's a very important connection. And so Simon rightfully says, well, obviously the one who he forgave the most, who, who forgave more. And Jesus says, you've, you've judged rightly. It's, that's the right decision. But this is really important. Look with me now at the scripture. It says, then turning to the woman, he speaks to Simon, okay? Turning to the woman, he's looking this sweet woman in the, maybe in the face. It doesn't say he's looking her in the face. You know, she, she's constantly wiping and anointing, but she knows they're talking about her. So maybe he says, he says to him, Simon, he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. He's reminding him of the three custom, three custom greetings. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Almost, if we look between the lines here, sounds like the woman maybe got there before Jesus. He says, from the time I came in. Sounds like the woman actually got, I mean, she's, remember I said she, this wasn't somebody just said, hey, by the way, there's Jesus over at Simon's house. She learned, she heard about the invitation. She's been following Jesus and she was there ready for this. This wasn't just a haphazard thing. And then he says, she has not stopped kissing my feet from the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with this precious ointment. Therefore, I tell you, he says to Simon, he's looking at her. I love this. He's look, She has to be looking at him. I mean, it doesn't say she is, but she's got to be looking at him. He's talking about her. And, and can, can you just picture the poignancy of Jesus looking into this woman's eyes? That's the way I want to think about it, okay? He's looking into her eyes and he's saying, To Simon. He's saying, Therefore I tell you, Simon, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Wow! This is huge. This is a big. A big point that we must grasp when we think about our own lives, when we think about this. Now, let's look at another Greek word here. We talked about how that Epigenosco, how she really sought him out. And I see Sue is watching. Thank you for joining us, Sue. Good to have you with us. There's another word here this word that Jesus uses of kissing feet, okay? And Luke used it earlier when he talked about her description. And he puts this word in Jesus' uh, vocabulary here. He says, Jesus said, she doesn't stop kissing my feet. The word here used is katafileo. Katafileo, K-A-T-A-P-H-I-L-E-O. Now, you know, phileo means love. A Brotherly love, you know, brotherly, sisterly type of love. Not an agape, godly love. Um, but it, it can mean everything from a fondness to a true love of my brother, that sort of thing. But... But by adding that kata there he is saying this is a strong love he's saying she loves me fervently I mean this is why we know it's just not one or two tears dropping I mean it's continual this woman is broken to her core by her own sin and in the presence of her Savior having seen all that he's done She's totally repentant. I want you to think about this. She's probably been hearing Jesus' sermons. She's probably been seeing Jesus do miracles. Maybe I'm, I'm thinking she's definitely heard Jesus' words that said, like in Matthew chapter 11, in, in verses 28 to 30, where he says, Come unto me, all who are heavy-laden, who are burdened. And I will give you peace. Take my yoke, for my yoke is light. My burden is easy. And I will give you peace. This woman, outcast in society, making a living as a prostitute, because it's probably all she feels he can do. We don't know anything about her life story, but clearly it's a pretty poor one. It's a bad one full of hurt, full of heartache, full of rejection and disappointment, rejected by her society, used by people. And this woman hears Jesus say, come to me. Well, that's exactly what she did. She said, She's believing. We know she believes Jesus. She believes him. She is repenting by her very actions. And I think that's a really important That's a really important thing to note. We can say we believe in Jesus all day long, but unless our actions really show that we are repentant, it it means nothing. It's just words. John says it in his first epistle, brothers and sisters, let us not just love with words, but with actions and deeds. So for her to risk embarrassment, walk into a Pharisee's house, which was unheard of. She wasn't supposed to be in there as a sinful woman. And in front of everybody, pour out her life savings, probably. This this important, beautiful, vial of oil or anointment. Ointment. She anoints the feet of the Savior as a way of saying, I am... I am poor, I am miserable, I am wretched, I'm a sinner. And and can you imagine what she's what she's thinking when she hears Jesus? And this is why I think she looks into his face when he's he's talking to Simon, but he's looking at her and says, This woman's sins are many. And she's like, Wow, I know they are. But she's forgiven. And think of how that made her feel to hear. Her Lord says she's forgiven. Now, Jesus ends this. I want to come back to that point right there. But Jesus ends this by saying directly to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. There's the announcement, there's the assurance. It worked. Her risk was worth it all. It worked. And then we know that everyone in the room is just astonished. Those who are at the table with him, it says, they're just astonished. Who is this that he can forgive sins? And so he says to the woman, he spoke forgiveness to her, and now he says, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your faith. Three things that we're really trying to learn here in this lesson. We must learn in this lesson. One, there's no salvation without faith. There is no salvation without faith. And this woman had great faith. Great faith. But great faith issues into action. And this woman had great action. So we can say there's no salvation without faith. There's no salvation without some action on our part, too. We must demonstrate. It's called repentance. We must repent. What does repentance look like? Well, it looks different for everyone, I'm sure. So no one can say, here, this is what you do to repent. You just say you're sorry. Well, I know that's the beginnings of verbalizing it. But it it has to issue from our being. We have to show we're repentant for our sins. How do you do that? Well, maybe you offer up yourself, your very livelihood, your very everything to Christ, literally. And say, everything that I am, everything that I have is yours. I am sorry you weep for your sins. I wonder how, when was the last time you wept for your sins? I I, I took a lot away from this study this week. And this is, I want to share with you now the most important thing that I took away from this study. Sometimes if we've been walking with Jesus for a long time, we forget what it means to be repentant. And we start to think, oh, that's just something I did back when I was saved. But see, there, there's our first mistake. It's not about that I was saved. It's about that I was saved that I'm being saved, and that I will be saved in the end when Jesus returns. The concept of salvation is not a past event only. When the word salvation, in Greek, soter, S-O-T-E-R, the act of salvation, being saved, when it is used in the New Testament, it is used primarily in three different tenses, past, present, and future. I'll bet if you ask the average evangelical Christian, which ones use the most? They're going to say the past because I am saved. I've been saved. I can point you to the time I was saved. Overwhelmingly, Scripture uses the future tense, will be saved. Overwhelmingly. The full view of the New Testament and its teachings leads us to understand if we're understanding it properly, that salvation, while I can have assurance like Jesus gives to her that I am forgiven, it is a process, and it is a goal, and it is when he comes again, final. Okay, that's so big for us to grasp. So this idea that salvation is by faith, but salvation is also requires something of us deep, beautiful, great repentance. And sometimes we fail to do that. We fail to continue in that. The third one, before I forget it, I'm going to come back to number two. The third one is that there is peace. We must look into the face of Jesus and receive his peace. It is why he came. It is why he died. It is why he forgives. He wants to bring us peace. Now, we come back to number two. Number two, this idea that that uh, repentance must go on. When I came from my youth as a Catholic, you all know that, most of you, to the Church of the Nazarene, and was converted if you will into an understanding that i i received a a more of a personal relationship with christ and a beautiful filling of his holy spirit and the teachings of john wesley and this idea of of uh, the filling of the holy spirit and holiness just overwhelmed me that is what drew me into the church uh into the church of the nazarene and, and and the holiness the wesleyan holiness movement um when i did that it's interesting how I began to notice there was a difference in, in all the worship. Very rarely was there ever any, and this is going back, you know, 35 years ago. Very rarely was there ever any talk of confession. Well, there were altar calls that were come and get saved. And there you need to confess your sins, and repent, and, and receive forgiveness. Nothing wrong with that. But there was rarely any talk of confession. It was as if we didn't need to confess because, you know, hey, I'm forgiven, right? I'm saved. I think we missed something in that. I noticed it in the worship services. There just wasn't a place really for confession. Every church is different. The Lord's Prayer was even rarely used in an audible, corporate-type praying way. You can't pray the Lord's Prayer without realizing it's a prayer of confession. Forgive me, my trespasses, my sins, the word is sin, as we, or forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's a corporate confession. And I knew from studies that early Christian worship had always included this idea of corporate confession, that before we can really worship God, in the freedom of our spirit, we need to unburden our spirit. And, and whether it's really sin or whether it's really, uh, you know, these uh, human frailties and things, John Wesley began to talk about the differences there in, in a New Testament sense of sin being a willful transgression. It really doesn't matter, but I think we made it matter too much because we lost sight of what it means to be forgiven and to practice repentance and forgiveness. And in that, I, I, I felt something was missing. My private devotional life has always included prayers and confession. Because as much as I want to be wholly thine, as the old hymn says, wholly thine, O oh Lord, I know that every minute I live, every moment I breathe, every thought I take, There is more of me to surrender and less of me that has been surrendered. And I need to surrender and I need, therefore, I believe we must always live a repentant, confessional lifestyle. I can remember, I don't know, 10 years ago, I can't remember when it was exactly, but I remember the service when Nazarene evangelist. Norman Moore, and and I know people listening to this are not all from the Church of Nazarene. Of course, it's going out all over the world. But there was an evangelist, who a traveling evangelist, who came and preached a series of messages in a revival service. And his his one was called, That We Must Live a Confessional Lifestyle. And he even said it. He said, I know what I'm saying is controversial. Because some of y'all think you don't need to confess anymore. Wow. He said it. And he was right on. And I was back there going, amen. I need, I need to confess. So, you know, I, I hope I'm talking to no one that thinks that way. I, I hope everyone, I'm, everyone listening to this Bible study today thinks, you know, I, I live a confessional lifestyle. I realize my sinfulness and, and everything. But, but in case I am talking to someone who has lost sight of our need for continued repentance and continued confessional lifestyles, I want you to hear these words. The Apostle Paul, the great apostle, wrote two thirds of the New Testament, said these words to his son in the faith, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.15, he confesses that he is the chief of sinners, he feels that he's chief of sinners. Okay, now we're not to take from that that the Apostle Paul is out living a double lifestyle and he's intentionally committing sin. It's an understanding that he is less than the holiness of God. It's called humility. Okay, and and by that same token, these are the words I'm going to give you now of St. Francis of Assisi. Coffee break here. Mm. St. Francis of Assisi said this, 12th century, somewhere around there. Um, if I can read my own writing as I wrote the quote down. Nowhere is there a more wretched sinner, more miserable than I. Saint Francis said that. Man who devoted his gave up the wealth of the world of his family and devoted his life to the gospel, to the itinerant preaching and teaching of the gospel, reaching out to the poor. Said, Nowhere is there a more wretched, more miserable sinner than I. And that leads me to this thought. And it's not original with me, I've read it somewhere. That the greatest sin is to be, you know, it says scripturally that the greatest sin, the unforgivable sin, is blasphemy. You say there is no God. But I think in this context, hear me out the greatest sin is to be conscious of no sin. Think that through with me. The greatest sin of our life is to be conscious of no sin in our life. I don't want to ever get to that state of consciousness where I think I have no sin of any shape or form, or if you want to get technical... Definition. Okay, I don't think we have to lose our holiness because of admitting that, that we have a sinful heart. Praying something like, you know, uh, I'm a lost sheep. You know, I've we've, we've erred and strayed from Thy ways like lost sheep, or I've sinned every day and thought, word, and deed. There's a lot of uh, a lot of Wesleyan scholars that do not like that phrase of sin every day and thought, word, and deed. But yet, think back on your life. Think back on what you just thought about. Think back on what you just did or didn't do, okay? Our deeds are also our omitted deeds. We do. We're we're sinners. Saved by grace. Saved by grace if we've truly given our our heart and our life, as this woman did, our act of repentance. Um, So how does all this—I need to wind it up here because I've got to go to work uh, this morning— at noon. And and so I I just want to finish with this thought. We are a holiness people. Okay, whether you, I don't care what denomination you belong to, you should be a holiness people. We're to pursue holiness. Without which the book of Hebrews says, no one can see God. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Bible from the beginning to the end says, Leviticus And in Peter, it says, be holy even as I am holy, says the Lord our God. We're to be people of holiness. But when we think we have become so holy that we don't or can't sin, we're, we're so far from holiness, it, it isn't even funny. Look back at the St. Francis, the greatest saints of the ages. If you go back and read their memoirs, read their works, look at their lives, these were great holy people, and they were conscious of their sinfulness. I think it was St. Bernard of Clairvaux, similar time period as St. Francis, actually, contemporaries. I think he's the one that said, the sins of our lives that offend God the most are not the big ones, it's the little ones. We think, wow, the ones that would offend Him the most being the prostitute or immoral or murder. I, you know, just let our mind run with wild, big sins. I so said, No, I think the sins that offend our God the most are the little ones because you see, the little ones. We don't bother to confess. We don't even, if we're not careful, we don't even notice them. Because why? We take the grace of God for granted. This woman did not take the grace of God for granted. She yearned for that grace and she received that grace because she loved lavishly. And the whole point of Jesus' parable that he tells to Simon, the Pharisee, is that There isn't much forgiveness unless there's much love. Whoever loves little is forgiven little because you just don't know how to confess it. Love of God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you are forgiven much. And you receive great grace. And like this woman, Can turn and look straight into the face of Jesus and hear Him say, You are forgiven because of His death on the cross, because of His resurrection power. You are forgiven. Now go in peace. Don't go in peace and forget that you're a sinner. (laughs) Go in peace. Go in peace. Stay humble. Be a person of prayer. Seek holiness seek holiness like this woman sought out Jesus. Wow, there's so much more we could say. Uh, There's a lot of metaphorical meanings here that I didn't have time to go over with you about. You know, the woman represents the world and the Gentiles and Simon represents the the Jews that reject Jesus. And and the feet, why the feet? I love this, the feet. Uh, The others all are anointing of the head, but this story is about the feet. The feet represent the gospel going forth into the world, you know. It says, I believe in the book of Romans, doesn't say that how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. How will they know unless someone is sent? So there's so much more to this story, but we'll move on to chapter 8 next week, okay? Chapter 8. I really want to thank you for joining me today. It's just been so good to be with you. Uh, Keep praying for my wife Rhonda's recovery and rehab time, and uh, God bless you. Let me pray for you as we close today. Dear Heavenly Father, would you look into each of our hearts and would you help us to be truly repentant, to recognize our sinfulness wherever, however, whenever it exists, and to live lives that are totally surrendered, totally pursuing holiness, totally within the grip of your grace. So bless us now with the beautiful forgiveness as Jesus spoke it to that woman that day. Let us all hear it in our hearts today. And let us rise from this place and go and be healed and be whole and be loving and be forgiving of others. For we have been forgiven much. We ask this now in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for joining me today.